You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. When I wrote Songbirds, I didn't realize it was going to go the way it did. Once it became an absolutely phenomenal bestseller, I said to myself, don't ever try to top it. People are always going to be disappointed that they're not going to get another Songbirds. Author Colleen McCulloch. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Let me take you back four and a half decades to the late 1970s when one of the most popular novels in the world was a family saga set in Australia called The Thornbirds. Now, if you happen to miss the book in the 70s, by the early 1980s it was turned into a hugely popular TV miniseries. The author of The Thornbirds was Australian-born Colleen McCulloch. Now, in 1987, just four years after the miniseries, she wrote a novella called The Ladies of Missalonghi. And that's when I first had the chance to meet her, first of many conversations I had with her over the years. And I was as enthralled as you're about to be by her wit, her insights, and her incredibly infectious laugh. So here now from 1987, Colleen McCulloch. Tell me why a reader such as myself, who uh-huh. this is not the story that I would go into a bookstore, <laughs> look for, and buy. Right. Tell me why I'm fascinated by this story. I think probably because I'm a very good storyteller. Um, I know how to tell a story, and so depending what the kind of story is, I, I'm sufficiently skilled and versatile at my craft, I think, to, to give it just the right touch. It's the only reason I can think of, because I would have said it that Ladies was a, um, a woman's book, and men are loving it. And it really, I mean, it's a fairy story. <laughs> are, men, are men identifying with this mysterious John Smith? John Smith? Perhaps they are. I don't know. But uh, but uh, without giving the plot away, Mr. John Smith um, is is a very mysterious character, but he he does very well at my hands. Um, he's treated with a great deal more sympathy than, than some of the other characters. <laughs> on the, uh, in, the, in the jacket copy, and I found this uh, very, very true, it says, on one level, The Ladies of Missalong is a classic fairy tale, but it's also a wickedly accurate picture of life in a place where men may dominate, but women rule. <laughs> oh, how true. <laughs> women usually do. They, they, uh, they have to go about it perhaps a little subtly, but uh, they usually do rule, especially in any kind of domestic uh, situation. And a small town, this tale all takes place in a very small town around the year 1913, just before the First War. And in that kind of situation, because of the social ramifications and the fact that being a small town, it's largely everybody's related to everybody else, women rule. They do. Why is it that we like to read about this small town that is dominated by one family and always has been and probably always will be until the stranger comes to town? <laughs> well, I think that's that's perhaps how a lot of us have lived at one time. I know a lot of people live in huge cities. They perhaps find the small town family domination 
fascinating because they don't experience it. Those of us who have experienced it, I remember living in a place where there were 33 families on one party line. And whenever that phone rang, everybody picked it up. And the two official uh, talkers, one would say to the other, have you seen old Hoop Iron Collins this week? And the other one will say, no. And a voice will interject and say, oh, I saw him. <laughs> and instead of the two official talkers sort of say, get off the line, you twit. Instead, they, they sort of say, oh, thanks very much. How is he? Oh, he's all right. And then somebody else butts in and this is how <laughs> small communities work who needs newspapers you don't you don't absolutely not newspapers just oh the I, I live in a small place and i can tell you we have a weekly newspaper that's typewritten and photocopied and uh you're really disappointed when you get the official newspaper version of a story because you've heard about ten versions that were much more interesting. <laughs> now, people listening to us right now, they're thinking, my gosh, this must be a great book. And they're going to run to the bookstore and they're going to look for this big, giant book like uh -huh, the Thornbirds. Right. <laughs> and they're going to be wrong, aren't they? It's a tiny book. Why did you write such a small book? It was my publisher's idea. He had this idea for a series of uh, novellas or mini-novels written by various well-known novelists. And so he asked me would I be interested, and, and the idea was that each of them would be illustrated by a well-known artist. And I thought, I don't know whether I could write a small book. And then I thought, well, well what a challenge, what fun. So I said, okay, I'll be in it. And not knowing any Australian artists, they asked me to find the artist to illustrate the book, which was also fun. And then I turned round and, and uh, I thought, a small book, especially for me, I, I can't be serious. I can't delve into characters and sort of turn them inside out and scrape the entrails off them and things like that. <laughs> I thought it's got to be something. This is my chance to write a book that is of absolutely no importance, has no message, has nothing to do except entertain me while I'm writing it and everybody else while they're reading it. And so I, I wrote a book. It was lovely. I enjoyed it so much because normally as a novelist you have to respect your characters and you have to you have to think of them seriously but in this i had a chance to poke fun at my characters in a very gentle sort of way and poke fun at a town and poke fun at at, at social institutions would it translate well to the screen do you think probably there's been a lot of offers already and does that, a, does that surprise you? No, because I'm a visual writer. So um, I don't. I think the only book I've ever written that is perhaps not that it isn't visual, but that it's a bit of a hot potato, uh, is Creed for the Third Millennium. So there have been a few people kind of walking around us on eggshells, but it hasn't come to the screen where all the others have. Is it more difficult to sit down at the typewriter knowing that you've got something like the thorn birds behind you and the knowing now that you have to come up with something that people will say, yeah, I like that too. Um, I think when I wrote Thornbirds, I didn't realize it was going to go the way it did. Once it became an absolutely phenomenal bestseller, I uh, said to myself, don't ever try to top it. 
don't ever try to repeat it. And I thought, people are always going to be disappointed that they're not going to get another Thornbirds. How can you, how can you rewrite an act like that anyway? I'd be bored to rewrite a book. That's why all my books are different. So I just go gaily waltzing on, um, producing books that are very different from each other. And my readers, readers tend to be faithful once they've found you anyway. And my readers, uh, some of them like this book best, some like that book best. The Thornbirds fans will like the ladies very much, I think. Uh, it's the first book I've written since Thornbirds that ha- it's a period piece and it has a feel, a family life and things like that, uh, that, that I haven't treated since Thornbirds. So as I say, I think that the Thornbirds people will like it, but it's a tiny little book. <laughs> After the short break, Colleen McCulloch muses on the idea of being a celebrity. Now back to my 1987 conversation with Colleen McCulloch. This really is a fascinating uh, glimpse at what that life must have been mm. like in the, in that period of time. Yes. Things things that people of my generation and yours really mm-hmm. are, are That's not right. are not don't don't have a first hand familiarity with. We see it at the Smithsonian, perhaps, but <laughs> That's right. Yes. And yes. It, it it really it it um, there are terms in here and and uh, <laughs> and but, but they're easily easily drawn out of context yes. to, to to figure out what they mean. And it really there's a lot of texture mm-hmm. to your story. I think it's because I, I remember my grandmother. She was very old. Uh, and she was over 100 when she died, and she died in eight, 1971. And I think she was born in Christchurch, New Zealand, in 1869. Consequently, having Nana around, as we used to call her, and she, uh, she was very much a part of the family and lived with us. And having Nana around, and she used to chatter away about what things were like. And her vocabulary was wonderful. She had a Victorian vocabulary. And so I grew up knowing all these phrases and how they used to say things. And uh, that was a great help, both with Thornbirds and with ladies. Have we lost some of that? Uh, that talent for vocabulary in the in the 1980s with our computer disks and modems have we lost the ability to communicate more richly than to just say wow look at the moon mm-hmm. i think we have some of us the anybody with a large dollop of kelt is bound to have some sort of gift with words and i notice a lot of black people have a lovely turn of phrase and a real interest in words i worked a long time in the u.s in the old days before i became rich and famous and it was one thing i always noticed about black people that they had a a, a sort of feel for words they relished them and it's celtic too and uh, those people are always going to uh to love words it's not dying but it is amongst a lot of people who've done nothing but watch television i think haven't read very many books and you know the this oh wow gee hey ah uh. <laughs> you got it down perfectly <laughs> i'm a natural watcher of people <laughs> it's very handy living on norfolk island because it's 
the, 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 the native people are the descendants of the mutiny on the bounty, and they are all each other's cousins. Are you the celebrity of the island? No, 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 no. Um, our celebrities are rather different. Uh, there's a chap called Tardy Evans. He's a great celebrity, but then Tardy was drunk one night and took off at about 100 miles an hour in his V8 car, chased by the cops. And the roads are very narrow and winding, and he came to this terribly, terribly sharp bend. He got round it successfully, and then he thought, ooh, I wonder if the cops are going to make it. So he stopped and made sure that the cops made the bend safely. <laughs> and then he started off again, and the cops said, forget this. And they went and waited at his house for him. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tardy's a local celebrity. I don't do anything nearly as interesting as that. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful... It only happened recently, but that's the sort of thing that happens on Norfolk Island and people like Tardy are the celebrities because they do interesting, funny things locally. And, uh, I mean, what do I do? I write books and I'm lucky if anybody ever sees me because I'm always writing books. <laughs> <laughs> so what? They don't, they don't give a stuff about the fact that I might be famous overseas, <laughs> but on Norfolk Island, I'm just there in the background and Tardy Evans is famous. Why do you like to write? I don't know. I, I've always loved to write. Ever since I was a tiny little... No, I was never a very little thing. <laughs> but ever since I was young, <laughs> um, long before I went to school, I just fell in love with words. And then when I learned to read, I fell in love with books. And I suppose I was naturally creative. And when you are creative and you fall in love with something, you... um you have to make your own. And I wanted to make my own books. And so I, I started to write books when I, I learned to write, physically learned to write. And I kept on writing books, and I wrote thousands of books before I ever considered, you know, becoming a professional writer. Yet there are so many budding novelists who will read your work or the work of any of a half mm -hmm. dozen other famous authors and they'll say, gee, it looks so easy. Why can't <laughs> I do it? Why can't I just sit down at the typewriter with a good character in my mind and turn out a story like that? Because it takes practice, of course. It's like, it's like giving a newly graduated doctor um, a set of instruments that belong to a neurosurgeon and saying, go into that operating room and do brain surgery. It really is when you think about it. Uh, those instruments are the neurosurgeon's tools. And it takes him many years to learn how to use them really well. When writing words are your tools, and to learn to use words well means that you have to read omnivorously, if you don't, you, it doesn't sink into your mind. You don't acquire a vocabulary and you don't acquire that observation that says there are ten different ways to string the words together in this particular sentence, but I have to know the best way to do it. And that comes with practice, sitting down at a typewriter and practicing. Um, people seem to think that they can turn out something good the first time they try it. Nobody who does turn out anything good ever did that the first time round. 
it's the it's the result of long familiarity and i think too that 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 separates the men from the boys because if you're really just a dilettante and you don't really love it uh all of that hard work will eventually either defeat you or bore you but if you really got what it takes you just get more wrapped in it the more work you put into it Colleen McCulloch died in 2015. She was 77. And you can find easy Amazon links to Colleen McCulloch's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, don't miss my interviews with two other very talented storytellers. My 1987 conversation with Fried Green Tomatoes author Fanny Flagg. It's always what we don't have. I think even if you never lived in a small town, in your heart you long to go back there. I think we all have a longing to go back. And my 2005 conversation with the man who personifies small towns, Garrison Keillor. In Minnesota, you're not quite allowed to enjoy your success. We are a culture of modest people and and we we would actually prefer that you come in second or third. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, an interview with the woman whose song not only inspired millions but actually came to symbolize an entire era of pop music. My 1997 conversation with Gloria Gaynor. They came up with this song I Will Survive and when I read the lyrics in the studio with my husband who's also my manager, we said there's no way that this song should ever be on the B side of anything. And we worked to get it published as the A side. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.